Well, a few Sundays ago, we began our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And to start with, we took a step back to look at the life of the Apostle Paul, how the letter to the Philippians fit into his life. And then for two Sundays, we looked at Acts chapter 16, where we find the story of Paul's very first days in the city of Philippi. Now today, I want to do two things. I want to talk first through the 12 years between the church plant in Philippi and the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And then second, I want to walk through the first eight verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians. <clears throat> so let's begin by going one more time to the book of Acts. So I'll look back at the book of Acts, where this all began. This is in Acts chapter 16, but perhaps you will uh, remember some of the story by just looking at this map, okay? So, the year was around A.D. 50. Paul was on what we typically call his second missionary journey. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke had traveled together from the place called Troas in modern-day Turkey across the sea to the region of Macedonia, which is mostly in modern-day Greece, the parts that he went to. The first city that they focused on when they landed was a Roman colony by the name of Philippi. When they arrived there in the year 50, there were, as far as we know, no Christians there at all. But when they left, a few months later, a church was there, meeting for worship at the house of a new convert, a lady named Lydia. Now, we've talked about those things, but what I want to focus on for the first part of the sermon today is the question, what happened next? Okay, what happened after Paul and his team left the city of Philippi. Now, I don't, I don't plan to go through everything that happened in Paul's life. We've done that in an early, earlier sermon. But I want to focus instead on the relationship between Paul and that Philippian church from the time he left until 12 years later when he wrote them the letter. For example, did they stay in touch with each other? Did Paul ever go back and visit with them? What happened between them over the next 12 years? Now, to see what happens, you just have to look at the headings in your Bible. Okay, so look at Acts chapter 17, so the very next chapter, and I want you to look at the bold heading. Okay, now, that, those headings are not original, but they're really helpful, and I imagine everybody's Bible has them nowadays. Okay? So what I see at the beginning of Acts chapter 17 is this little phrase, that says, Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. They could have added Timothy because he was there too, but he's kind of forgotten. But Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Okay, so now you look at the map. After leaving Philippi, Paul and his team went right down the road to the next major city, the next closest city, the city of Thessalonica. And okay, how did things go in that city? We're not going to read the story. I'll just tell you. On the one hand, there was a lot of success, just like there was in Philippi. Many people in that city came to Christ, and a new church was born 
in the city of Thessalonica. But on the other hand, the opposition in that city was even worse than it had been in Philippi, which is saying something because Paul and Silas were beaten with rods in Philippi and thrown in, and thrown in prison. But I would say the opposition in Thessalonica, the next city, was even worse. Things got so bad, so fast, that after maybe just a few weeks of being there, Paul and Silas basically had to run for their lives. Now, skip over to the next chapter, Acts chapter 18. And again, look at the heading. Okay? This is where I see Paul in Corinth. Okay, now, if you look back up at the map, okay, you see Corinth is very far down to the south, down by the end of, of Greece there. Okay? Now, God does some really great things down in Corinth. A church is birthed in Corinth, but in this particular city, Jesus specifically tells Paul some really encouraging news. Okay, so look at Acts chapter 18, verse 9. So Acts 18, verse 9, Jesus says this to Paul. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Okay, because for months, Paul has been on the run. He has been hurt, chased after. There have been mobs coming after him wherever he goes, it seems like. And now Jesus tells Paul when he gets to Corinth, I am going to keep you safe in this city. Do not be afraid. You can just keep on speaking. Nobody is going to hurt you here. So this allows Paul for the very first time to actually stay in a city for as long as he would like to stay in a city. And he stays there for 18 months in the city of Corinth. Now, after that, Paul eventually heads back home to his church in Antioch, which is over on the east side of the map. <clears throat> that is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. He stays there for a little while. Short time later, they head out on what would be called his third missionary journey, which would be the last one that he makes like this kind. And that story is told primarily in the next chapter, Acts chapter 19, where you see the heading, Paul in Ephesus, because he spends most of the third journey in Ephesus. He spends three years there. But what I want to highlight about that last journey is that Paul adds a new title to his job description. Okay. Before that, we thought Paul the missionary. But on the third journey, Paul also becomes Paul the fundraiser. On the third journey, Paul spends three years in the city of Ephesus planting churches, training pastors. But the other thing that he does during those three years is he tries to raise money, not for himself, but for a special gift that he wants to take personally to the poor, suffering Jewish Christians down in Jerusalem. And so for those years, he is writing, visiting, trying to gather money from the Gentile churches that he's planted so he can take it down to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in the hopes of unifying Jews and Gentiles in the church forever. Now, the third journey actually ends with Paul going down with the gift to Jerusalem, but sadly, things do not go how he hoped. They do not go well at all. One thing leads to another. Paul is arrested, 
And the next thing you know, Paul has been a prisoner for many, many years, at least four years, maybe even longer. Paul finally ends up in Rome where he sits under house arrest for two whole years just waiting for his trial before the emperor Nero. The year is now A.D. 62. Twelve years have gone by since the church was started in Philippi and the time that Paul is writing the letter from house arrest in Rome. Okay, now that is a quick retelling of the 12 years from the plant in AD 50 to the letter in the year 62. But now I want to try to fill in the gaps of what happened between Paul and the Philippians during those 12 years. Did they stay in touch? Did he ever go back and visit with them? Now what I want to say that what I'm going to say here is all in the New Testament, but it is not written in one place. Okay, so you have to put the story together from a few different places. So I think you're going to find this really interesting and really helpful when you read the letter to the Philippians this week. Okay, so let's start by actually going to Philippians and look at chapter 4. So the letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. So the last chapter, I want you to look at chapter 4, and we're going to see where Paul reminds the church of what they did for him 12 years ago. Okay, look at chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. <clears throat> now I know you may have already forgotten the little bit of stuff I just said earlier. Okay, so this is going to press the short-term memory. Okay, where did Paul go after Philippi? Because okay. some people, they look at maps and things and like, totally lose everything that they are. Okay, he went from Philippi right down the road to Thessalonica. Okay, this was right after he left their church. This was a brand new church, and could you follow what he said there? He's reminding them of what they did from the very beginning. Okay, what does he say? He says, 12, it's 12 years later, he's writing the letter, and he says, look, when I left you, there was only one church, only one that entered a partnership with me and gave to me for the work I was doing. It was you. He says, even in the very next city, the city of Thessalonica, you sent me help time and again. This was a brand new church. The church hadn't even been around but a couple of months. And they were the one church that was sacrificially giving to him to support his work. Okay, now I want to press into the short-term memory even more. Okay, so after that, where does he go for 18 months? Corinth, right? Way down south on the map, okay? Now, Corinth, as you can see, has a lot of water around it. <clears throat> this was a major trade city. This was a wealthy city in Corinth. 
Uh, there were many, many people that flowed through that city, and there was a whole lot of money and trade that went back and forth through the city. And not surprisingly, wherever there was money, there were also a lot of teachers that came through that city trying to get a following and trying to get money from people. So when Paul went to the city of Corinth and started to preach about Jesus, he decided that for as long as he would live in Corinth, he would not take any money from anyone in Corinth, probably because of all these teachers that had come through trying to get a following and get money. He decided that for as long as he would be there, he would not take any of their money. He didn't take. So he starts these churches in Corinth, and he refuses to let them give him any money, even though he knew he had the right to be compensated for what he was doing. So the question is, how did Paul make a living? What, what did he do for 18 months? How did he support himself and his team while he was there? On the one hand, you might think, you know, Paul had a pretty good side hustle as a tent maker, okay? That's one answer. And the other answer is he relied on the support of other churches for the work he was doing in Corinth. So look over in your Bible at 2 Corinthians. Okay, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want you to see how he talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. Okay, he is writing to the Corinthian church about how he didn't take their money. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Okay, so as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, don't you remember how I lived when I was with you? I would not take your money. I, in fact, robbed other churches. Now, to be clear, he did not literally rob these churches. Okay. But what he means is that instead of taking support from the Corinthians that he was serving, Paul relied on sacrificial gifts from other churches. Which ones? The ones in Macedonia. And probably most of all, the church in Philippi. It says, when those brothers came down from Macedonia, they met all my needs. Okay. They supplied my need. Now, all of that is actually on the very same journey that Paul planted the church. So in other words, like that, all that he's talking about there happened with a brand new church. I mean, we're talking like they're like a year old, and they are sacrificially, generously, repeatedly giving financially to Paul to support him in the ministry. Now, over the next couple of years, <clears throat> we don't know about what happened between them, okay? But here's the one thing that I know that happened to each of them. Over the next few years, like I said, Paul becomes Paul the fundraiser, not just the missionary. And the Philippian church, over the next couple years, becomes extremely poor. They go through serious trials. We don't know all the details, but they become well-known for their poverty. And that creates an interesting situation because Paul 
is trying more and more to raise money. And the Philippian church has become more and more poor. Now, what happens? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We read this text. Tim read this text. And I want you to think about it. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says to the Corinthians, probably a wealthier church, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, especially Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this was not what we expected. And this was because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Okay, that right there is about five years after Paul planted the church. Here the church is going through extreme poverty, severe test of affliction. But when they hear Paul talking about his heart to raise money for some poor Jewish Christians, what do they do? They do more than Paul ever expected. They gave according to their means, and Paul says they gave beyond their means. And notice it was entirely voluntary. They did this completely on their own, of their own accord. In fact, Paul says they pleaded with us for the privilege of participating in the gift. And Paul adds that they gave their resources like this because they had first given themselves to the Lord. This is one of the greatest testimonies of any church in the New Testament. The church in Philippi is the model of a giving church in the whole New Testament. Shortly after Paul delivers that gift, though, down to Jerusalem, what happens? He gets arrested, and he spends the next several years in prison. Eventually, he gets sent to Rome, where he sits under house arrest for two years, waiting for his trial before Nero. Now, I don't know what you think about house arrest in Rome, like how you picture, like when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he was under house arrest. What was the situation like? He spent two years in that situation. On the one hand, this means things were not as bad as they could be for him. In other words, Paul was not suffering in a dungeon for two years. He's in his own house that he's probably renting in Rome, but he's under arrest, constantly chained to Roman guards that would rotate through. But people are allowed to come and go and visit with him as they want. He just can't leave the house arrest. But this also means that Paul needs help to make it financially. Because in this Roman system, you had to support yourself while you were under house arrest. And it's not like Paul can just sell his tents you know, on eBay or something and have them shipped out. So news of this situation eventually comes to Philippi. 
his long-term friends, maybe through Luke. The church in Philippi finally finds out where Paul is, what's gone on, how this is all shaking out in Rome. And once they hear about his needs, what do they do? This is now about 11 years after Paul planted the church. And look at what they do. Go back to Philippians and look at chapter 4 again. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you just didn't have the opportunity. Then jump down to verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. One more time, the Philippian church came through for Paul in a huge way. Epaphroditus, you might remember, is actually from their church. So that means they sent not just gifts. They sent one of their own members a thousand miles to Rome with the gifts so he could personally deliver them. They took care of all Paul's needs and more. And I love how Paul describes the gifts. He says they were a fragrant offering. Those gifts were a sacrifice to God, pleasing and acceptable to God. That is the story of the 12 years between the church plant and the letter. And it is a story of friendship, love, and partnership in the gospel. Now, it is that very last set of gifts that actually leads to Paul writing the letter. And so you can imagine how he feels when he writes the letter. And with that in mind, I want to read the first eight verses of Philippians. <clears throat> Next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll talk through some more of the details in the verses, but I primarily want you to get the feel of the first eight verses today. So look at chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
That is a picture of what can happen when brothers and sisters partner closely together in the gospel for a long time. It leads to thankfulness, joy, and deep, deep love. You see the thankfulness and the joy in verses 3 and 4? I thank my God every time I remember you. In verse 3 and verse 4, I constantly make my prayers for you with joy. And you feel the love in verses 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, for God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ. Now, what is the driving reason behind all of that? That's verse 5, right? It's because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until today. More than any other church in the, in the entire New Testament, the Philippians have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel for 12 years. They have always been there for him in times of his greatest need. From the first days when he went down the road to Thessalonica all the way to his imprisonment in Rome a thousand miles away. They've never forgotten him. They've given him what he needed time and time again. They visited him. They prayed for him. They've loved him. And so by this point, their bonds with each other have become unbreakable. And so Paul expresses in every way he can think of in those verses his deep gratitude to God and his deep, deep love for them. And perhaps I, my favorite verse might be verse 8, when Paul says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. Not with just ordinary affection, but with the affection of Christ Jesus himself. The Philippian church is the greatest model in the New Testament of a giving church. And their relationship with Paul is the greatest model in the New Testament of gospel partnership. And so what I want to do, just as we step back from the text, is I want to think about how what we've seen in that story and in that text maybe relates to us as a church who partner together in the gospel and to us as we seek to partner with gospel workers around the world. <clears throat> so to start with, I want to I think back to how the church became so gracious. Okay, after all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, they never gave because they had to. It was entirely voluntary. They were truly gracious givers. So the question I, I want to think about is, how did they become so gracious? And the first answer to that, both in Philippians and in Corinthians, is that they tasted the grace of God in Christ themselves. That, that's behind their gracious giving, is they had actually experienced the amazing grace of God to them. And that theme runs through 2 Corinthians and also Philippians, where he says in verse 7, for you all have become partakers with me 
of grace. That's what leads to gracious giving. It's, and it's not the other way around. Okay? It's, it's always this way in the Bible. Those who receive God's grace become gracious. It's not the other way around. God is not gracious to us because we were first gracious to him or anyone else. It's always the other way. God gives us grace in Christ, and we taste it. We see what he's done for us, and it makes us gracious to other people. It's like what John will do with love in his writings. He'll say in many ways, we love because God first loved us in Christ. God first gives his grace to us, and that leads to us becoming gracious. <clears throat> when we truly understand how gracious God has been to us in Christ, when we think and grasp how God freely gave up his own son for us, how God freely forgave us through the cross, how God has lavished his grace upon us, God begins to make us more and more gracious. And so my first question about this is just, have you truly tasted the grace of God in Christ to you? Even the song we sing, Amazing Grace, do you resonate with the song? Do, do you know that that's true of you? Have you seen that God was gracious to you, a great sinner? Do you feel it? That's what leads to a gracious heart to others. The second answer, though, to how they were so gracious with their resources, I think, is that they had first given themselves completely to the Lord. That's what Paul points to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when he says, this church did even more than I expected. And it was because they had first given themselves to the Lord. When I hear that, I can't help but think of Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. The Philippian church is known for doing that. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And, and think about that. If, if you have the perspective that all that you are is the Lord's, then it's easier to come to the conclusion that all that you possess is at the Lord's disposal. And this is what happened in the church in Philippi. Paul saw it. He says, these people, they gave their entire beings to the Lord. And so that led them to be very free with their possessions. That's the kind of perspective that leads to gracious giving. And then the other thing I want to close with today is I want us to think about what gracious, sacrificial giving leads to. So the one 
part is I want to think what, what leads to gracious giving. And the second part, what does gracious giving lead to? Okay. As, you, as we read the text in Philippians, what did you see? What does it lead to? When Paul receives the gracious gifts, what does it lead him to do? Gracious giving leads to thankfulness to God from the people who receive the gifts. This was a big part of Paul's thinking about giving. When people gave to him, he was, of course, thankful to them, though I don't think he ever says it. When people gave to him, you know what he always did? I thank God for you. Giving always led to more and more thanksgiving to God. Which you could think of this of it this way. Gracious giving leads to people giving the glory to God. And this is a big part of why Paul was never ashamed to ask people to give to the work of the gospel. Because he knew that if, they, if we give, then it leads those people who receive to worship God. Not us, but God. Second, gracious giving leads to joy in the hearts of those who get the gifts. I mean, how could you read what Paul wrote in the opening of Philippians and not, and not see that? That their love for Paul, shown through their prayers and their gifts, led Paul to incredibly deep joy in his heart. He says, I, every time I pray for you, my heart is filled with joy. And then third, gracious giving binds our hearts to the people we give to. And this is true in many areas of life. This is true, for example, in a church. Okay, so I think of our church. Our church takes wonderful care of our pastors and their families. This has been the case from the very first day when we were very small. And this binds our hearts together as a church. Our deacons also seek to take care of and give on behalf of the church to those in need, to those who are hurting. And I have heard time and again from those who have received those gifts how those gifts have knit their hearts together with their brothers and sisters in the church. This happens beyond those ways as well. But what is most directly connected to the text today is that sacrificial giving binds our hearts to gospel partners. And it binds their hearts to us. This is what happened with Paul and the Philippians. I think back to our history as a church. There were certain churches and individuals, but especially churches, that gave sacrificially to us to try to get this church started. And that bound our hearts together in ways that continue still today. And this is what we want to see happen more and more with our gospel partners, both those we send out from our midst and those we come alongside of in the future and partner with in ministry. Our heart for missions, 
for gospel partners, for helping church plants locally and around the world, is we want to be a church that gives sacrificially and generously for a long time. And the result of that, by God's grace, will be that our hearts will be bound to them and their hearts to us. And the deeper the partnerships become, the more thanksgiving goes to God, the more joy fills our hearts, and the more precious our love for each other becomes. And one day, it may even lead to letters like this, where someone might say, I always thank God for this church every time I remember you. I make my prayers for you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until today. And God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus himself. This, I hope, not only encourages us as we think about God's grace to us, stir, also stirs us maybe about how we view our own possessions, but I hope this encourages us as a church with a vision of what gospel partnership can look like with those that we hopefully send out from our midst and those that we are even going to visit in just a couple weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story and these texts of how you knit and bind the hearts of your people together. And Lord, I pray that as you have been so gracious to us, I pray that you will fill our hearts with overflowing generosity toward others, that there might not be even one person in our midst who's left in need. Lord, help us to look out for one another. And then, Lord, I pray that you will help us to give sacrificially, generously to gospel partners, that our hearts may be bound together, that we may share together in the joy and in the harvest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.